open our, our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're continuing uh, in a section of Scripture that is dealing with the principles of the righteousness of God. And the key, as we work our way through Romans, we find in chapter 1, in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16 through 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. A righteousness we don't have, a righteousness we cannot create but a righteousness that we absolutely need in order to be reconciled to the God of the universe whom we have offended. And we can only receive from one place through finished work of Jesus Christ by faith through grace. And as we've been talking about this principle, this righteousness that we need Paul begins his discourse on the concept that we, every one of us, you and and I together, we, we need to understand that we need righteousness. Well, he starts in the, in the, in the, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, telling us our guilt. He spends a long time talking about it because, to be honest, we're not very good at receiving that. We're not very good at understanding or recognizing our responsibility. We're not very good at recognizing the fact that when the Bible talks about sin and its point about sin is not that you have offended your brother. And that's how we tend to relate to it most often. We look at sin horizontally. When we talk about people being good people, we're talking about their good to other people. We're talking about their kind toward other people or their gracious toward other people. When the Bible talks about sin, it never starts there. It starts with the concept that you have dishonored God. That we, men and women, in our nature, dishonor God by the things we do. And the things we say. And so he, he points to that over and over again. Remember he started with the, with the morally corrupt. And he said, hey, you can see God in, in creation. What is evident that you need to know about God, you can see in creation. But you reject that revelation. And when we reject the revelation of God, revelation stops. You get what I'm saying? Wherever you stop receiving the revelation of God, if you, if you receive the revelation of God in creation and you read Genesis 1 and then it stops for you there, the revelation of God stops where you stop. It shuts down. The Bible goes on to tell us that the morally corrupt is without excuse. And he climbs the ladder, remember? He climbs to the next person. Who are you, O man, who judge? Because while you're pointing your fingers at somebody else, you're forgetting your own need. You're ignoring your responsibility to the God that you've offended by spending all your time focusing horizontally on what's going on down here. And our priorities are flipped. He continues to climb the ladder of, of morality and he comes to what he considers to be the peak, the religious guy. For his day it was the Jew. For our day it could be the church. And he says to the Jew, he says, look, you think you, you are born into or by heritage you have something from God. But if your insides don't match what you have been given as a privilege on the outside, then you're just as lost as the morally corrupt guy. That's the point that Paul's been working his way through. The guilt of men. When he comes to chapter 3, he has had a lot of experience. You guys know he's had a lot of experience talking in synagogues. You know, everywhere Paul went, where did he start? In the synagogue, right? He would reason in the synagogue. And pretty soon the synagogue would throw him out. So you think, 
I don't know, Paul's somewhat aware of the argument that he had in every single synagogue. You know, for the last 30 years of ministry, as he was traveling around, he, he, I think he had a pretty good idea of their argument. And I think in chapter 3, he lays that out. He takes a short detour for eight verses, and then he comes back to the main road in verse 9, and, and continues. We're going to finish it up all the way to verse 20, so let's take a look at it this morning. The natural question then to them begins in chapter 3, verse 1. If this is true, if there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile, if, if their insides don't match the outsides, if they don't have a rea- the reality of a relationship with Christ, if that's true, Paul begins, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, then why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So what then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together (coughs) become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known, for there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before You this morning, Father, and we just ask, God, that You would open our eyes, that we can see and hear and recognize, Lord God, What the Word of God is telling us. Lord, that you, (coughs) as you've inspired this chapter, that you, by the Holy Spirit, gave word to Paul as he wrote this letter. There are so many things you're telling us here. I pray we'd be receptive to them. We wouldn't be slow of speech or slow of hearing and slow to understand. But God, that we'd be hungry to know, to understand, to grasp what Your Word is laying out for us. God, we just want to pick up Your message and understand Your truth as we give You praise and glory in this place. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the natural question then that comes from this, Paul just said in the previous verses, there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. If a a Jew's not a Jew on the inside, it doesn't matter what he is on the outside. Now you can substitute that, that concept to any, you certainly can substitute it in the church, right? A person is not a Christian who's one on the outside. Doesn't matter what jewelry you wear. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized or you haven't been baptized. If you're not, the reality of your Christianity is not on the inside, and you're not a Christian. So the, the, the question then is, well, what was the whole point then? The Jewish people. 
What advantage was there to be a Jew? And, and I love Paul because he starts with this concept. He says, firstly, and then he never says secondly, thirdly, or fourthly until chapter 9. So he's, he's going to go for a while. He takes this detour and he's going to come back to this concept. Let's take a look at it. In chapter 3, what advantage then to the Jew? What profit in circumcision? What was the point of it all? So Paul answers, much in every way. Chiefly, proton is the Greek word. It means in the first place, in the first place, because to them were committed the oracles of God. That word committed means to entrust. And the concept of being entrusted, having something entrusted to you, is the idea that you are responsible for two things. It's protection and it's publishing, I guess would be a good way to say it. Putting it out to protect it and to put it out for others to be able to hear, to see. To you were committed the oracles of God. God called them, God spoke to them, God delivered them the word. And so Paul begins with what is the, what is the point of being a Jew? Well, firstly, it is all about the concept that to you was, was dedicated or given the responsibility of God's word. And by the way, they did a very good job of it. 1947, 48, when they made the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found that complete scroll of Isaiah a thousand years prior to anything else we had, and you can still look at it today word for word. It's what's in your Bible. They protected. And they put it out. It's pretty amazing what they did and, and what they laid out and what they accomplished in that. He says, much and in every way, Just turn to the right. We'll just go to Romans 9 real fast and I'll show you the rest of the list (coughs) that Paul talks about. In Romans chapter 9 verse 4, he says, Then who are Israelites and to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. That's the rest of the list. To them were committed the oracles of God. To them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and its promises. From whom are the fathers, and from whom also in the flesh Christ came. That is the privilege of being a Jew, the advantage of being a Jew. Paul declares there in in chapter 9. So, okay, so Paul says, listen, you say Israel has a chosen place in God's plan, but you also say that they're perishing in unbelief. I don't understand that. And somehow they'll be judged by Gentiles. Sounds like double talk. You know, Jews are blessed and the Jews are judged. How's that going to work? What is this concept of... uh, Covenant security. And is it hinge on belief? And is it a part of of judgment? Look, they assumed they either had to all be saved or they had to all be lost. And they didn't really understand the Lord God then, did they? Here comes their argument. If what you say is true, then our conduct affects... God's character. This was the Jewish argument that Paul fought with everywhere he went. Our conduct affects God's nature. And so, sometimes people have this this type of a mindset. In fact, their thought is, then, if God doesn't save us all, He shows Himself to be unfaithful. Because He's made promises. This was the concept that the rabbis taught. This is what they thought. So they they discuss it in three what-if questions. You'll see them in, what is it, three, five, and seven? Three what-ifs. What-if, what-if, what-if. You ever had those what-if conversations with people? Well, what if, 
Usually my conversation would then move to, well, what if Skylab falls out of the sky tomorrow and lands on your head? I don't know. What if it does? What ifs? Crazy questions. We'll see it in a sec. But there's something particular about these what ifs. These what ifs use what's what's called in the Greek a first class condition of the word if, which would be best described as the word since. They're based on beginning with a true statement. You get me? So they take this true statement, since this is true, then, and they try to develop a concept of how God is shown to be not true. If it's true that the Jew is judged, well, let's look at it. Let's see what he says. He begins in verse 3. For what if some did not believe? That's a true statement, right? Since some did not believe, we know some did not believe. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, how does the unbelief of the Jews affect the faithfulness of God? Some people would say that every Jew is supposed to be saved. But if the Jews don't believe, then what does that mean about the faithfulness of God? Well, the answer is in the next verse. Look at it. Certainly not. Indeed, you've heard this before. Let God be true and every man a liar. But do you understand what that means? It means let God be found true even though every man on earth is lost. God doesn't lose his faithfulness because of the lost condition of his people. In fact, God's word even declares that. But that was part of the argument that they would use. Look at he's saying God's nature is not affected by our choices. Choose what you want. God is faithful, even though we are faithless. Doesn't the scripture tell us that? The Bible tells us that. It lays it out for us in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Though every man were a liar, God would be true. God would be faithful still. No matter what. This is the argument that Paul lays out to him. <clears throat> but then he bases that argument on Psalm 51. You see that the, the verse there that's quoted. He says, may God be true and every man a liar as it's written. And he goes to Psalm 51. What's Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is a Psalm of David after he was caught in his sin with Bathsheba. And he was judged by God. And this is David's response. That you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. He's speaking to God and he's saying, God, you have every right to judge me for my sin against you and you only have I sinned. David is saying, I have offended you. Oftentimes we focus on the offense horizontally, but David focused on that offense vertically. I have offended you, God. And you are right to judge David, the champion of Israel, David, their greatest king. If David, the greatest king Israel had, said God was right to judge him, then it doesn't make God unfaithful if he does so. We see it also in Psalm 89. If you, if you can consider looking at Psalm 89, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 30. This is what God is saying to the, to the nation and what they tended to misunderstand because they thought they were so privileged, it didn't matter how they lived. It didn't matter what they did. They're privileged. But before we're too hard on them, there's a whole lot of people in the church that think the same thing. It doesn't matter how I live. I go to church every Sunday. I go to church, so I'm okay. But if the inside doesn't match the outside, you'll be judged. Perhaps by that morally corrupt person that you think can possibly be saved. So the Lord says in Psalm 89 verse 30, If his sons, speaking of the seed of David, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments... 
I will punish them with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from them, nor will I allow my faithfulness to fail. So God says, even though I have to judge them, even though the nation of Israel is going to go into captivity, even though the nation of Israel over and over and over again is going to meet the judgment of God for their sin, God says, I will remain faithful. I will remain faithful. That does not mean every soul born under the heritage of the Jew is a Jew. Paul says they are not all Israel who call themselves Israel. Israel meant to be governed by God. They are all Israel who believe in the promises, who commit themselves to the Word, who commit themselves to the Lord God Almighty. Those, those are Jew. But they don't get that just by heritage. You get what they're saying? If our heritage, if we're not saved only by our heritage, then God's unfaithful. Paul says he's not. Look, he judged David. Was David judged by God? Absolutely he was. Absolutely he was. Was God still faithful? Sure he was. He was still faithful. David repented and God never left him. And God is still, today, still has plans for the nation of Israel. But being born a Jew doesn't set you apart. And your choices and conduct does not affect the nature of God. He is true no matter what you do. He is faithful no matter what you've done. No matter what happens. God is there. God is faithful. God is moving. God is just. But he goes on in verse 5 to the next question. But, in contrast, if or since our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God... Then what should we say? God is unjust who inflicts wrath. So the argument here is, listen, my unrighteousness makes God's righteousness look better. By my unrighteousness, I make God look good. They say, in effect, if our sin, our unrighteousness shows or magnifies God's righteousness, like we're the backdrop, and so God's righteousness really pops because we're so sinful, then we're not really the instruments of sin. We're instruments of the glory of God. We're magnifying God by our unrighteousness. So God wouldn't judge us because in reality, we're not really sinning. We're really glorifying God. Do you guys ever heard of the phrase spin doctors? The Jews invented it. They invented it. We maybe have perfected it, but the Jews invented it. See, they're dancing around words, and they're dancing around concepts. Now, (coughs) this argument is so crazy, I want you to see how Paul responds to it, because I bet most of the time we miss it. Most of the time we come into these questions, because it's very Jewish, a very Jewish book. It's very Jewish to ask questions, answer questions, and we get lost in them. Because we don't understand what in the world are they talking about. In fact, you see where Paul says, I speak as a man? We, we get confused about that. What Paul's saying is, this argument is so lame, I tremble to even use it. But he uses it because it had been used against him. That's why he's talking about this. Because this was the mindset of the Jew who rejected the gospel. Our righteousness, our unrighteousness, makes it easier for you to see God. Well, Paul says that. Let me, let me tell you how dumb that argument is. Look at the next two verses. <clears throat> so is God unjust who brings judgment, who inflicts wrath? Certainly not. For then how would God judge the world? By that argument, Paul says, God couldn't judge the world. Because the world's so sinful it makes God look good. So why would, if God's not going to judge you for your sin, He's certainly not going to judge the world. But the same people who said our unrighteousness makes God's righteousness look better also said we know God's going to judge the world and all them dirty Gentiles are fuel for the fires of hell. You see the logic? It's crazy. It's crazy. But I hear stuff like this in the world all the time. 
Not necessarily the idea of our righteousness, but the lame arguments, the lame ideas that they come up with to, to try to put out the reality that we need God, that we need this relationship with Him. We need Him. We need Him. So first off, <coughs> how would God judge the world? Second argument, Paul lifts himself up before them. Now listen, every one of those guys in the synagogue who rejected Paul's message, what did they want to do to Paul? They want to kill him, right? They want to kill him because he's a no good, dirty, rotten sinner. So I want you to notice that the pronouns in this next question change. And Paul starts talking about himself. He says, now listen, you guys who have this argument, if this is true, if your unrighteousness makes God look so good, and so you shouldn't be judged, then he says, well then, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, then why do you judge me a sinner? Paul says, look, you want to kill me because I'm telling you the gospel. Well, you say this gospel is a lie. Well, then, if it is a lie and it makes the righteousness of God look better, then why are you judging me? See, Paul's showing them the ridiculousness of their arguments. But he's also trying to open their eyes. Because they're so blinded, because everything about them is focused horizontally, that they're not considering the fact that each one of them individually has offended the God of the universe, which is what Paul's talking about. You offended Him. You offended God. You have offended God. So then Paul goes on with the, with the craziness of this question. He says, well then, <coughs> let us do evil that good may come. That's the culmination of that thought, right? My unrighteousness makes God look good. So I'm going to sin like crazy because it makes the grace of God look crazy. Look really good, right? We're going to see it again, right? Should I sin that grace would abound? Certainly not. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? This argument comes back around. But what Paul's talking about, he's looking at the, the mind of the Jews who have rejected the gospel in his ministry. Three times he traveled around the world spreading the gospel. And every town he went to, the Jews threw him out. So he's familiar with the argument. He says this argument is crazy. This idea is crazy. They are guilty before God. So then Paul responds, As we are slanderously reported, and some also affirm, some people were saying that Paul taught, let us do evil, that good may abound. But Paul says, Paul says their condemnation is just. He says, a people with this argument are condemned, and they deserve it. Because it's ridiculous. Crazy, the concept, the idea is crazy. Those who argue in this way show they're condemned. Their logic. So then Paul gets back on track in, in verse 9. Look what he says. So what then? So in verse 1, what advantage then? That was the beginning of the detour. Then in verse 9, what then? Now, as we have accomplished the detour, are we better than they? Are we, when Paul says are we, he's talking about are we Jews better than the Gentiles? Because we had advantages, because we had the word of God, because we've had these things in our life. He says not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. That word under means to be under the power, enslaved to We are all enslaved to sin. We have fallen under its power. And there's only one way to get free. So Paul begins in this last section, I think, to ask this question then. Who is righteous? Who is right before God? And he answers it pretty quick, doesn't he? Because he starts with the first phrase, as it is written, there is how many righteous? Oops, that's going to be a problem, right? 
that's going to be a problem. When we look at this, there's a, there's a word I can't really pronounce, but basically what we have here in the Hebrew is what's called the string of pearls. He's going to put together, uh, several Old Testament verses and phrases to build a string of pearls for the case against man. What he's talking about is man in his nature. Well, we know in Genesis chapter 15 it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for what? Righteousness. So, there were guys in the Old Testament who were righteous, weren't there? Sure there were. But they weren't righteous in their own nature, were they? How did Abraham become righteous? He believed God. He had faith. He trusted in God. How do you or I become righteous? The same way, right? We believe God. We have faith in God. You are saved by grace through faith. We trust Him. <coughs> so that's where the righteousness comes. But in our nature, apart from God, there's no righteous. None. Oftentimes you talk to people and they'll say, I'm a good person. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I do a lot of good things. What are they thinking about? Horizontal. Oh, I saw a guy without a jacket one time. I gave him a jacket. I saw a guy who didn't have any food. I bought him lunch one time. I'm, I'm basically a good guy. Horizontally. But before God, vertically there is none righteous. And just in case we didn't get it, what's the next phrase? No, not one. Not some. There's not a few. There's not a couple of exceptions. There are none. None righteous. No, not one. We are not morally good by nature. We're not. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. Our nature makes us children of the judgment. The attitudes and the thoughts and the actions that we have means that we deserve the wrath of God. By nature. That's what he's talking about here. In Colossians 3.6, we are called the sons of disobedience. We're so disobedient that the Bible says our father is disobedience himself. And we are sons of our father. If you will, chips off of the old block. Sons of disobedience. Look, we don't just do sins, we're sinful. We are under the power of the control of sin. It's our master, it's our king. It rules us. It reigns over us. But we're not innocent victims. It's not that we're victims of sin, we're co-conspirators, I guess you could say. We're co-conspirators against God. With sin. That's why we have offended God. In our nature. There's none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside and they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good no, not one. Those first couple of verses deal with our ruin. We have ruined our relationship with God. Our relationship in nature is ruined with God because we are unrighteous. Because our desire is not to know God or to know His will for our life. We don't understand our desire in our nature is not to seek after God. People today seek after religious experience. That's not the same thing as seeking after God. You get that? Seeking an experience is not seeking God. There's nobody who seeks after God. The Bible always tells us who makes the first move in every relationship where someone gets saved. God does. And that when you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Last I checked, none of you were around then. So Jesus got started on it way before you did. There's no one who seeks 
after God. They have all turned aside to their own way. There is a way that seems right unto man. The way thereof leads to death. They have together become unprofitable. They don't care. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Remember, we're not talking horizontal. What are we talking about? Vertical. Vertical. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about it. Think about sin as mainly a condition of rebellion against God. We have offended the God of the universe. Not against people, although that is sinful. That's not our our charge here. The sin that God's charging us with is the dishonor of the Lord God Almighty. The main question is this. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love His Son, Jesus Christ? See, God is the most important being in all of the universe. So there's no special point for doing nice things for people if you have no love for God. It earns us nothing. So who is righteous? Only Jesus Christ kept the commandment. Only Jesus Christ... Fulfilled the commandment to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, with all his mind, and his neighbor as himself. Consider today, how many of you today, since you got up, have fulfilled the great commitment and loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? There is not even one. It's not by righteousness that I have done, but receiving the righteousness that He has accomplished by which we are saved. It's not about what we do and the works that we have done. We fall short. That's His point. That's the purpose. Not only have we ruined our relationship with God, which we see there in those first couple of verses, but look in, in, in verse 13 and 14. The description now turns to uh, our, our, our character, the things we do. Primarily in these first two verses, the things we say, right? Look at the, look at the, the terms that are used. Their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth. What's he talking about? It's not hard, right? You don't need a, a, a special degree to understand this. He says, their throat is an open tomb. You ever gone by an open grave with a dead body in it? Can you imagine what that smells like? See, the Lord is saying that that your throat smells like that. He's not saying you have halitosis. He's saying the words you use stink like a dead man's grave. The way you talk. With their, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. We lie. The poison of asps is under their lips. We poison. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You see, sin ruins our words. And our words ruin our relationship with other people. Have you not experienced that? By something we've said or something someone else has said? Where relationships, I know relationships in the church that were ruined. But just simply by what somebody said. Sin ruins your words. The Bible's clear. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. How many corrupt words? Oh, no, no corrupt. Does no mean none? Surely it means some. I mean, occasionally I get angry and I should just be able to spew, Right? I'm only venting. How many of us have ever said that? I'm only venting. You know what the Bible says about venting? The Bible says a fool vents. And a fool, by the way, in the Bible is not a good thing. In case you were wondering. Fool's not good. Man. Look, he's, he's saying that sin has ruined our words and it ruins our relationships with others. And then in verse 15... And, 
and 16, 17, he talks about our actions. Not only are our words ruined, but our actions. Look, our feet are swift to shed blood. Is that true? 20th century was the bloodiest century yet. I thought we were more civilized. Well, we're in the 21st century. It's, it's looking to be a lot better, right? Oh, man, we're off to a, <clears throat> we're off to a great start. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Look, he's saying destruction and misery, the desire to shed blood is in your nature. What stops you from killing and maiming and, and doing the things that only those other people do? What stops you? You know, every place there has ever been a riot, there has been looting. Who's doing the looting? Who's doing the burning? Who's doing the killing? Who's doing the stealing? It's people that sat in a room once upon a time and said, I would never do that. I would never do that. But then all of a sudden, the police are gone. All the control is lifted. There's chaos. There's nobody forcing them. Nobody making them. There's no way you're going to get caught. There's a crazy flood down in New Orleans and there's bodies everywhere. You know how many people were murdered during that time? Because nobody could tell you to stop. Nobody was going to catch you. Do you know how many things were stolen? Because it's in the nature of man. So man's good at cleaning himself up and putting a nice clothes on and looking good on the outside. Man's good at that. But in his nature, his feet are swift to shed blood. And destruction and misery are in his ways. That's, that's his goal. That's what he is all about accomplishing. And the way of peace they have not known. That's not in your nature. That's not in the nature of man. Every time somebody says, what I want is world peace, you are off your rocker. If we have shown anything by the history of mankind, no matter how much of a history you think that is, we have shown that mankind cannot be at peace. He knows how to make war. He don't know how to make peace. The way of peace is not in him. Sin has ruined our actions. Sin has ruined our words. It ruins our relationships with people. And it has ruined our relationship with God Almighty. So his conclusion in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Whatever the law says, says to those who are under the law. Oh wait, what did he say? Why did all this come to be? Why is this the the issue? Because they have no fear of God. I don't care what God's law says. Or what God's desire is. There is no God. We must save ourselves as the chant of mankind today. And has been since 1933. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And so, what is it that the law accomplishes? Just this, that every mouth would be stopped and all the world guilty before God. We've had that, le- that, that, that lesson in the Greek, right? All means, and that's, that all means, right? So all the world means, oh, it's amazing how that works, right? Is there anyone who is not guilty before God? No. None. No one. No one. I hear people tell me all the time, Oh, but Jackie, that's crazy because those babies are so innocent. I don't want to offend you, but they're not innocent. 
The only thing that keeps a baby from killing you is its ability. It's too small and too weak. So it won't. Oh, come on, Jackie. Not my baby. Okay. That baby's going to become a teenager, and it's going to be way easier to see then. That, that child is born with a sin nature. The Minnesota Crime Commission came out and made a statement on infants. And they said, the rage in an infant who is crying for their bottle or to be changed is no different than the rage in a man who commits murder. The only difference is ability. A child is born holy in sin. You don't have to teach them what to do wrong. You don't. Did you ever have to teach them? Now, son, when I say don't touch that, you're supposed to touch it again. Do you ever have to tell them that? I don't have to tell mine that. Maybe mine are the only messed up ones. But if I said to my son, don't touch that, the next thing he's going to do, put his hand on it. So it was my job as his father to teach him that sin destroys. It's wrong. It's bad. Now, I don't care how you discipline, but I'll tell you how the Bible says to do it. A father disciplines his son promptly. It means he loves him. A father who doesn't discipline his son means he hates him. Do you love your children? You teach them, right? Not to sin. They're born with it already. Already offending God in their nature. Nature. They're not accountable yet because they're too little. They don't understand. But the day of accountability does come for us all. And that day may be different. That's why the Bible doesn't tell us what the age is. You can argue about it all you want. The person is accountable once they understand. Look what it says in verse 19. The law makes all the world guilty. But look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. When is a person accountable for what they do? When they understand, when they have knowledge of sin. Now they're accountable. They're accountable to God and they are standing in a position of being condemned before Him. Until that reconciliation is made. It says that Scripture lets us know. No one can be justified by the law. No one. The law will never justify you. The law shows you you're guilty. The law shows your sin. I'm a guilty man before God. But it also teaches me. That's why it's good. The law teaches me. And by the law I learn the knowledge. That word is epigenosis. Epigenosis is, carries the idea of a complete intimate knowledge. It means in the law, in the word of God, I learn what sin is. And I learn about my offense to God. And learning that shows me that I need a savior. Terrible place to stop. So I won't. I'll just read the next three verses. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now, The righteousness of God is being revealed. But now. Now that you know you're guilty. But now. God. 
He bridged the gap. He provides the righteousness that we need. The verdict, you are guilty. I'm guilty. But God, who is rich in mercy and the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together with him. That's what God has done. And for us to value the gift, we have to recognize the guilt. For us to value God and the offense that we have made before Him, we have to understand we dishonored God. But, He came from as far away as you can imagine to fulfill what you could not do. So that He could take the punishment, the wrath. For you by nature were children of wrath. He took that wrath upon Himself. Died and rose again. So He could declare to you, I have done it. I paid the price. All you have to do is on all and to all who, what? Believe. For there is no difference. No difference between Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. There is one way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Just stand with me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time and we can just come to the end, the culmination of the guilt of mankind. Three chapters reminding us of, of our guilt, that we all fall short, that we have offended you, that our measurement is not horizontal, our offense is vertical. We have offended you. We don't desire to find all our joy in you by nature. We need you to make us born again. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he shall never see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? How can this take place? Except a man be born of the Spirit. To come to Jesus Christ and receive what He is offering. To as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become children of God, even to those who believed on His name. Romans 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has gifted mankind with a seed. It's called faith. And I get to place that seed wherever I want. I can place it in me, or I can place it in a church, or I can place it in the ground in the backyard, but the only thing that will save me is if I place it in Christ Jesus, my Lord. That I believe that He bore my sin Upon the cross. That by his stripes. I have been healed. That the wrath. 
of God meant for me was placed upon Him. That He died a death I could not come back from so that I might live eternally. And then when it is finished and the resurrected Christ stands before us, He says, today is the day. Now is the time. This is the day of salvation. Will you put your trust in Him? For He has accomplished it. He is the propitiation, the substitute, the sacrifice. He has become the high priest and the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. I am by nature a broken man, unable to meet the requirements of the God who made me. So the God who made me became those requirements and offers them to me in only one way, freely. I can't pay for them. I can't earn them. I just have to receive them. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts that we would not even believe if we were to see it. That you would take a man today who is dead in his trespasses and sin... And make him alive together with you. Born again. Anew. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your son who accomplished these things in our life. And it's my prayer today. that nobody leaves without that opportunity. The opportunity to place their trust in you. So while heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I invite you. To make today the day. To make now the time. Take that seed that God has gifted you, that faith that He has placed in your life, however small, and put it wholly and completely into Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, accomplish the work of salvation in the hearts of those this morning who are looking for you. I pray that you would do a perfect work. And for we left... I pray that we would recognize the value of the gift upon which we have placed our hope and trust. And that we would value it above every treasure on earth. For in Christ, He is the greatest treasure of more value than Endless piles of gold and silver. And I pray day by day and moment by moment in Christ we would pray to reflect the love of God that He deserves. 
for the gift that He has given us. God, I pray that You would be glorified in the lives lived out before You as we give unto You all the praise and glory do Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.